A vibrant, beloved real estate agent was savagely murdered during a showing by two mystery buyers. The crime rocked the Victoria area and left police searching for clues. Days turned to weeks, which turned into years, and it seemed the authorities were running out of ways to bring her killers to justice. This week's episode is The Unsolved Murder of Lindsay Buziak, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Well, Thank you, everybody, for joining us for part two, discussing Lindsay Buziak and all the response we got from part one. We definitely appreciate that. This is a Dateline happened to re-release their case. Totally coincidence. People were like, how did y'all know they were going to release that? To I said, we don't. We don't have a direct line with Dateline. That was just a happenstance. If you could get us Keith Morrison's phone number, we would take it at any point. But we just it was just a coincidence that both shows came out the same day and maybe hopefully we'll bring the case back to the forefront, mm-hmm. you know, bring even more interest into it. But something else that happened over this weekend that's extremely physically close to home to us and also just emotionally close to home based on what we've talked about in past Freaky Fridays and the world we live in is the Allen Outlet Mall shooting that happened this week in our our area. What's crazy about this is we were driving home from Houston for the tour Mm -hmm. and there's a set of outlet malls you pass on that stretch of highway. And we had this whole talk about outlet malls and how in high school, that was like the cool place to go was these outlet malls. So you got to get like nice clothes at a discount price and stuff. It was not the Allen outlet malls. However, we've been to those malls. It's, you know, an hour from us horrifying tragedy that I still am unable to wrap my head around. It's impossible to, to read all this stuff, uh, especially the children that lost their lives. One little boy is now the sole survivor of his family and he is six. Yeah. Yeah, His three-year-old brother, I believe was killed and he's six. So what a tragedy to occur to such a young, innocent victim So for at least this month, the very least we can do is 100% of our merch sales will go to a specific charity for the victims and their family of the Allen mass shooting. Yeah, it's the Victims First Fund and the Victims First organization. It's extremely sad that it has to even exist, but it's a... What happens when you take tragedy and try to make something of it? It's a network of surviving families of mass casualty crime and who have firsthand experience and they ensure that's a 501c3 that ensures all funds that you donate to their specific specifically designated GoFundMes will go to either a National Victims Fund or specific shooting. So they have set up an Allen Outlet Mall Victims Fund, and that's where we'll donate to. We'll also include the link in the show notes if you want to donate directly. Uh, But any merch you buy, anything like that, 100% of the profits will all donate. It's just 25 miles from our home, and it's a place we've been a million times 
and I was one of the many people I saw a news article and some people had DM'd us about just asking how we were and then said, oh, God. And then on Twitter, I saw unfettered video and photos of the event. And Twitter's so jacked up now, the algorithm's so bad that it's like pushing. It was pushing gore, graphic tragic photos into your for you page so it's not even people i was following Mm -hmm. you know you're searching for news and i saw things that i cannot unsee and that was just me seeing it not to mention the the dozens of people that were there and the people who were impacted so check the show notes for the gofundme link if you buy any merch that's also going straight to the gofundme and i also called my uh congressman today if you go to mom's demand action and i think if you type in fed up uh, you send a text message that says fed up to 64433 it will connect you with the my phone rang and i thought that it was like send a message to your congressman straight up called him so um i got a voicemail but i just said i'm a constituent this is important to me that you support a bipartisan bill that will protect against uh people that shouldn't have guns having them, assault weapons, anything like that. Whatever you believe your congressman should do, call them 64433, text fed up, and it will directly connect you. Yes, that's one of the most important things we can do to hopefully change some laws that will allow all of us to feel like we can live in a world where we're free to go to the mall with our family and not get gunned down. Exactly. Well, from one sad story to the next, this is part two of the unsolved murder of Lindsay Buziak. Like you said, Heather, there's the Dateline episode just got re-released. If you go to YouTube and just search Lindsay Buziak, there's countless numbers of shows, podcasts, TikTokers, influencers, whatever, that have covered this case. So hopefully with the re-release of a major outlet like Dateline, And then other people covering the story, we've seen it before happen where a spotlight starts to get re-shown on a cold case and then movement happens. So hopefully we can see some justice for Lindsay and her family in this case. I hope so. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Lindsay Buziak was a 24-year-old real estate agent living in Victoria, British Columbia, She received a phone call on her personal cell phone in late January of 2008 from an eager buyer who wanted to buy a million-dollar home in just two days. When Lindsay met the buyers at the newly constructed home in the suburb of Saanich, she had no idea she was meeting her murderers. When Saanich police arrived on the night of the murder, they had immediately locked down the house and began canvassing the neighborhood. Law enforcement officers descended on the neighborhood where witnesses saw forensic experts in white jumpsuits combing through the yards, garages, and piles of building materials in the nearby construction area, hoping to find a clue or the murder weapon. Police also questioned Jason that night, but eventually released him. And this is some initial report. So I just went back to the newspaper archives because I wanted to know There's a lot of people can give their recollection of the time in 2019 or 2023, but to go back and see photos of them investigating the crime scene, there was a large police presence. They were coming through things. And one of the sergeants in charge said, yeah, we took Jason down. He fully cooperated. There was rumors that he didn't provide a DNA sample, but 
the Spanish police have said that he did. So it's just interesting whenever you're going through, you know, when we're researching this, we I, I'll find a thing that's a blog or Reddit or a personally made website that says this didn't happen or this did happen. And I'm like, OK, I need three or four legitimate sources explaining this and it's wild to me that that's two things of there was almost no investigation the night of i mean there's photos and videos there was investigation that night there it's confusing that there's different stories and different accounts of what happened because it either things fell through the cracks or someone's trying to control a narrative or narratives plural to cause confusion push things in a different direction red herring it doesn't really do anyone any good, which seems like an obvious statement. But from the beginning, there's all these different, you know, things flying out there, which is why you get a bunch of shows that don't have the right information because somebody says the wrong information and then somebody else repeats it. And before you know it, that's what becomes like the truth. Mm-hmm. But then you start looking into police records and if we are to assume that what they wrote down is the truth, then it's different. Or do we assume that the police are lying? It's in a situation like this, it I have to look at who is who would stand to gain from this. And yeah. I got a couple theories. Yeah, and that's a good point because why all of a sudden do we have dueling narratives? If the truth is he he cooperated and provided DNA sample or he didn't and they lied, that's something else to look into. But let's all just agree that it was documented. These things were documented as happening. Yes. Lindsay's family was, of course, devastated by the news of her death. Her sister, Sarah, was living in the Cayman Islands at the time, and she received the worst phone call of her life. She told interviewers, I crumbled to the floor. I was in disbelief. Lindsay's friends had similar reactions, with no one able to understand how a woman described as everyone's friend was lured to an empty home and brutally slain. A Facebook page in her honor gained over 1,000 members in the days following her death, with friends calling her a ray of sunshine and commenting how badly they would miss her smile. And that seems to be the, I'm sure it's, you know, people don't speak ill of the dead, but it wasn't just a couple people that knew her. It was Every person she had interacted with said, I had a great interaction with her. She was, you know, it's not like, oh, well, she was, except she was beefing with those people. She didn't have interpersonal issues. It was everybody was, everybody was like, oh, yeah, we hung out. She was great. She helped me buy a house or whatever. So it's interesting that somebody who has such a happy, positive social circle is subjected to something that you would most likely see. If, oh, but she had a secret life of crime. And that's why this mm -hmm. happened. It's like, no, she was just an average 24 year old. She didn't have any enemies. I mean, as far as anybody has turned up, and I think over the course of 15 years, it would probably come up if she had. Right. I think it might be a case of wrong place, wrong time, saw something you weren't supposed to, became a target, unfortunately, and it was of no fault of your own. You did nothing but happen to be in a place you shouldn't have been. Right. Police were able to piece together the timeline of the murders from digital forensics, including the digital lockbox on the front of the house, surveillance footage, and cell phone records. Lindsay first unlocked the key box at 5.29 p.m. She received a text from her boyfriend, Jason, at the same time, advising her that he was nine miles away. It was Jason who found Lindsay inside the house 
after his calls and texts to her went unanswered. Once police arrived, they found Jason and his friend Cohen with Lindsay's lifeless body. According to Sergeant Chris Horsley of the Saanich Police Department, the motive did not appear to be robbery, as Lindsay's wallet, purse, cell phone, and BMW were all left at the scene. Once the autopsy was performed, it showed that she suffered no signs of sexual assault. I thought it was interesting that the killers didn't even take her wallet, her phone, her purse, just something almost to make it look like it was a robbery. Although the overkill is significant, you would not normally see such a vicious and excessive amount of stab wounds if it were simply a robbery to, you know, you just want to knock somebody out and take their things. But it's interesting that they went in, they committed the crime and left the crime scene with no, not even trying to throw police off the trail. Yeah. Which could be indicative of a hit. They don't care. They just want to do what they were hired to do and get out. I also heard a different theory earlier today, which I don't personally buy, but it's, I guess, could be possible that the man and woman, specifically the man, just wanted to uh, indulge a fantasy of, of killing another woman and perhaps was in a relationship with the, uh, you know, the blonde woman and she helped him orchestrate the whole thing. The only supportive evidence I think with that would be that it seems like it was targeted specifically and not for a robbery or sexual motivation. So then if, is it just a thrill kill or is it because they are specifically trying to kill Lindsay? I think that the number one thing that undermines that theory is that it was her cell phone that they called personally. It wasn't like, oh, her face was on a billboard and they just called the number mm -hmm. off the billboard and just picked her. Yeah, no, I don't agree with that theory either. I just thought it kind of points to in a situation like this where it doesn't make any sense and it's unsolved, you could pull any theory out of thin air and find right. something about it that might make sense. Yeah, and the lack of evidence offers an opportunity for people to insert conjecture mm -hmm. and speculation. For sure. Sinisterhood will be right back. On Wednesday, February 6, 2008, just a few days after Lindsay's murder, the scene had been processed for forensics, and police asked Jason to accompany them on a video walkthrough of the house. Footage from the walkthrough shows Jason with a calm demeanor, walking officers through the order of events that happened that night. He said after his friend Cohen gained entry through a back door, Cohen opened the front door and let Jason inside. He is seen in footage explaining to officers that he bounded up the stairs. An officer asked Jason whether he touched the banister to the stairs on the way up. Jason tells him yes, towards the bottom. Upstairs, Jason said he found Lindsay's body up against a wall on the floor of the main bedroom. This video reenactment, and I guess, I mean, it is a, a reenactment, but it's Jason in the actual home where the murder took place, which has to be horrifying to go back to and brings up all sorts of emotions. I don't think it's strange that when he ran in the front door, he ran straight up the stairs to the bedroom. Others have said, well, if he's never been in this house, how would he know to run right up the stairs into the the main bedroom. Well, the way the house is when you open the front door, the staircase is right there. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a panic and you open it, 
and your friend is checking the downstairs, I think it's logical that you would just run right up the stairs right in front of you. And he said he saw her, you know, halfway up the steps, he sees her in the bedroom. So that's where you're going to run to. So I don't think that that makes him look suspicious necessarily. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially because his friend had run. It's not like he and his friend both entered the front door and they have no idea where to go. His friend had entered from the back door. So he's already seen the bottom half Mm -hmm. of the house behind him and knows she's not back there. And so you're right. I think if the door, you know, once the door is open, that Jason's going to go, okay, well, you just came from there. I'm not going to run back the direction that Cohen came. I'm going to run the next direction, which isn't the family room that you can see that is empty. The next thing is up the stairs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes logical sense. And the same with like grabbing the banister. He's like, I basically hoisted myself up this banister and took the stairs, you know, multiple at a time. People commented on his affectation during it. It was the murder happened on a Saturday and this walkthrough was on a Wednesday. So it was just like less than a week later. He seems to me numb. I don't feel like I think the matter of fact nature at no point was I like he's enjoying this or he's remembering. He's just like. I I grabbed the banister and they're like, well, did you grab anywhere else? Just the bottom, just the bottom. It's like, he seems like a, you know, like he wants to answer their questions, but wasn't uh, devastated crying. And also I've only, you know, we've only seen the clips that they've made public. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, I don't like to judge anyone based on just a few clips of seeing something, but if it's less than a week after it happened and you're having to visually walk through all of that again, Everyone grieves different and reacts different. So while one person might be breaking down sobbing, another might be just stoic trying to get through it and then breaks down in their car. You know, you never know what happens before and after these things. Sergeant Horsley told Crime Watch Daily that forensic evidence supports Jason's version of events. Jason was also subjected to a polygraph test, which Sergeant Horsley said he passed. In the early days after the murder, Police also spoke with Lindsay's ex-boyfriend, Matt McDuff, as well as his new girlfriend, clearing them of any involvement. In a press conference days after the murder, police made a statement to hopefully clear up rumors and speculation. Given the lack of DNA evidence, the Saanich PD admitted it was struggling to identify the killer, with the department's spokesperson saying, You would expect that given the severity of the attack that we may have had greater success with things such as DNA and hair and fiber evidence. And the reality is that's just not the case. After this press conference, the Saanich police announced to media outlets there would be no further updates in the case and asked the Buziak family not to speak to the media. Privately, police told Lindsay's family that they didn't need public tips to solve the case. This is the early days where I was reading these old newspaper reports and was like, well, I'm sorry, you said what now? You told the family what? Why wouldn't you want any tips to help solve the case? Oh, no. I think they were grossly underqualified to handle this. I don't mean that as a police department, they're a terrible police department. I mean, I think that the nature of this crime extends so far beyond their capabilities that they absolutely should have early on day one, like I said, like the Wiley PD call in the state and say, or the province, which would be, or the RM, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, you know, call in mm-hmm. a task force, call in somebody because hoarding all that information and keeping it and also keeping it from the media and the public, I get it. If you think you're running down leads, keep it from the media, but at the very least, reach out to somebody else who has better expertise in this specific area. Because I was, I was getting 
repeatedly shocked that they were doing these things. The things they were telling the family were, I was like, that is grossly incompetent, in my opinion. It seems like they didn't want to admit that they were in over their heads and that they needed help. And instead of swallowing their pride, they potentially botched an investigation. Yeah. And it's like, it's not about you. It's about collaring this person. So get as much help as you can. Yeah. If that involves putting information out on radio, TV, whatever to, to, for help, I don't know why you would turn that down. I don't know the downside of that. Maybe that you have to go through a bunch of tips that turn out to be nothing. But what if one of them turns out to be something? Wouldn't it have all been worth it? You're funny you should say that because one of the quotes I read in one of these newspaper articles, her family said, oh, they told us they would be overwhelmed with tips if we did that. Well, okay, be overwhelmed. I hope you are. You know what's overwhelming? Planning the funeral of our daughter who was just stabbed to death while doing her job. That's real overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. On February 9th, 2008, hundreds of mourners packed the St. Andrews Cathedral in Victoria to pay their respects to the 24-year-old with the 650-seat church full and mourners filling overflow spaces. Jeff Buziak made a plea before attendees at the funeral, announcing to the crowded cathedral, If there's anyone here who had anything to do with this horrible act, please come up to the front right now. This will be your only chance for forgiveness. No one came forward. And the amount of pain you have to be in to, you know, you're trying to mourn your daughter, but meanwhile, you know, that he keeps using the phrase killers are on the loose. And I don't think he's unreasonable in saying that what these folks are capable of is horrifying. And she's not the first person that they killed. I I would doubt it, doubt it. I don't think you go from no history of uh, violence like that to stabbing someone 40 times. There's usually a escalation to get to that point. But you have that fear of like, are they here? We don't know even what they look like because there was no description of them at the time of this. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of times killers do go back to revisit the crime scene or funerals. And if the police department is like, well, you can't talk to the media and you feel like, well, the biggest platform I have is my daughter's funeral to try and say something right now. That's such heartbreak on a whole other level you're not only having to bury your kid but also kind of use it as a way to see if you can get any information i mean i don't think anybody would actually come forward but you're throwing up kind of like a bat signal like hey if anybody's got anything just let we're open to it so you know find us after contact us whatever because you can't say to the masses what you want in the media Right. And this is pre, you know, they didn't have uh, a website dedicated to it or a large social media following where they could get a lot of attention. I mean, this is like a, a days later after it. So if you've kind of been advised, hey, maybe don't say so much to the media. You're right. Your hands are tied. And maybe he thought, you know, a friend of hers here didn't do it, but heard something or knew something like, please just come forward because that's all you have is like an emotional plea at that time. Yeah. And I mean, you're desperate. You're a grieving father. I can't Mm -hmm. fault him for for anything. Yeah. Despite the lack of fingerprints and DNA inside the house, police had one concrete piece of evidence to go on. The cell phone used to reach Lindsay. It was a prepaid cell phone purchased at a Vancouver convenience store just a few weeks before it was activated. On the phone provider's website, 
the purchaser had entered an address traceable back to a business that police determined was unrelated to the crime. It was also registered to a name, Paolo Rodriguez, that police believe was fake. Someone in the internet sleuthing community pointed out that Paolo is the more of a Portuguese translation of Paul. So maybe either the person really was related and that's why the accent, you know, they had an accent mm-hmm. or they just chose a name out of random and thought, well, this sounds like it would match this fake accent I'm doing. Yeah. A generic name that maybe they Googled and there's a million hits. So it kind of, you know, a common name. Right. And then the, yeah, the business address, they just picked like, you know, 1060 West Addison. They just picked something that would be, you could punch it into the computer, but no one's going to check or mail you anything. What do we think about the ability to legally obtain phones in that manner? Isn't that interesting? And I was thinking about this because this is, I mean, you you could go to the store right now and pay cash for something. And when we were studying the McDonald's phone scam, which studying, we were researching it for the mini so you know, the strip search scam, that person was using phone cards, mm-hmm. which were like almost just as not traceable, but you would have to then go like find the footage, the security footage of the person at the store and trace it down if they paid with cash. So those two things are wild that they still, I mean, they're you really great if you cannot afford a phone plan and being on a phone plan for a long time, I think it's a great thing to have accessible wireless communication, especially because there are no landlines anywhere. And like, if your housing is transient, you want to be able to be reachable for professional things. But to be able to easily fake a name and have nothing connected to it, I think it just opens you up for nefarious things like this. Yeah. No, I totally agree that there is a there there's a reason and it serves a purpose to not have to go to Sprint or AT&T and get a huge contract to get a phone. Not everybody can do that. And they should have still the, you know, ability and luxury of being able to have a phone. If you don't have a phone in today's society, no matter who you are, it's very hard to do things from the, the smallest thing to the biggest thing right? without having that connection to the outside world and just being able to like easily pick up the phone and call to ask a business a question or something, you know, it's a huge hindrance to not have one. Should they maybe be a bit more regulated to where, because it's not the first time that these types of phones have been used in crimes, it's certainly not going to be the last. So if we know that that is something that they're used for, should something be put in place to where they're a bit more regulated or at the very least they're registered? Yeah, and I th- and I think so. And we'll talk about in part three when we talk about the advancements of technology and what it means for this evidence. Perhaps now there's less need for registration regulation because of the advancement of technology. We can kind of know who you are regardless based on like what you log into on a phone. But you're right. Like the fact that you could just go to 20 bucks at a Walmart and you can call and say whatever you want in some cases, but maybe they could track you now. But at least back then it was loose. And even loose. if they do want to track you, unless it's a heinous offense, are they going to? You know, I mean, there's just enough hoops you got to jump through to figure it out that if somebody isn't wanting to be bothered or it's kind of, you know, low on their list of priorities of crimes to get to, the fact that they got to do a little extra work might work in your favor. They're not going to do that. But if you use your everyday cell phone, Mm -hmm. well, that you don't have to do much to pull records for that. 
That's true. Yeah, I'm going to look that up before part three. I will. We'll discuss that more in part three, just the advancements in cell phone technology, because I am fascinated by this. And what when do you need a warrant, police? Well, and kind of tangentially related. We were just discussing last night. Yeah. About how we all got to have a car registered to drive it. Mm -hmm. We all got to get driver's licenses legally. If you want to have a car legally and you want to be able to drive legally, you got to have those things. Guess what those don't apply to? Owning a gun. Yeah. You don't have to have a light. If you, which is what the killer in Allen did, all of his firearms were purchased legally, police say, but by private sellers, which means he did not have to have a background check. That is legal to do, to buy a firearm from a private seller and they don't have to do a background check. Yeah, I mean, if you go to like texas.gov, there's just a question that says, as a general rule, you need a license if you're going to repetitively do it. But yeah, it says, I have my own private gun. Can I just sell it? And what's the answer? Yeah, it says, if you only make occasional sales from your personal collection, you don't need to be licensed. And it said, determining whether you're engaged in a business requires looking at facts and circumstances. So then you have, oh, is this too much trouble to go through because we have to track this person down? And yeah, but you see, I mean, I speaking of unfettered access to things on the, on Twitter, in addition to horrifying crime scene photos, I also saw the perpetrator's entire social media um, presence, which included a receipt from a gun retailer, like an online gun retailer that... I guess his stuff, whatever he had in his background, didn't show up if that was a business that needed to federally mail it over state lines, you know, check it. So even with checks, it doesn't always work. But you're right. It's interesting the way these things that I think the technology goes on beyond our regulatory capabilities. We often have to catch up. It's like the Internet. There's certain things that were like, yeah, early days. You could just get music for free. It was Mm -hmm. dope. (laughs) It was awesome. Like there was no rules. And then now. Any movie for free. We don't. Yeah. And now it's like, well, if you do that, you're pirating it illegally. Yeah. So things evolve and change. It is. It's heinous that the same laws for a car don't apply to a gun. Should we extrapolate that out even further to should things like a phone also be traceable back to whoever the owner is? Right. That's a good question. I mean, some people would say like, hell no, I don't want anyone to follow me. They already are. That's yeah. some very bad news. That's yeah. Some very bad news. Have you like, already ever gotten a ticket? Do you have a driver's license? Social security number? Do you walk by any any video camera system in any 7-Eleven or any? I mean, if somebody's ring doorbell when I walk my dogs, I mean, my face is picked yeah. up. Like we are picked. They We're know what everywhere. we do. They yes. know what we do. Sinisterhood will be right back. Once activated, the phone was only used to call Lindsay in the days before her murder. It had pinged a tower indicating it had come over on a ferry from Vancouver to the island just 24 hours before the murder. There was also a second phone used to check the voicemail of the first phone, but police were unable to recover it. Given this limited evidence surrounding the cell phone, police believed Lindsay was targeted personally. The phone did not call any other real estate agents and did not call Lindsay's work number that was listed in brochures advertising her services. Instead, it called her personal cell phone number. Agent Lori Lidstone, who shared the D'Souza Homes listing with a colleague, told the province newspaper that neither she nor her colleague were contacted by the potential buyer. 
Instead, the buyer only ever called Lindsay. Lori told the paper, Someone specifically called this girl to show a vacant home. It sounds pre-planned and it sounds premeditated. It does. No, I totally agree. I think she was targeted, whether it was she was the intentional target or she was it was a case of mistaken identity target, whatever. I do think they were trying to kill her. Yes. And I and I think that they could have easily searched up the parameters they gave her and, you know, lured anybody there. But they chose to personally lure her there with her own cell phone. So and never contact any other agent or even even the buyer's agent. How do you think they would have gotten her cell phone? They said from a previous client when she said, how'd you get this? Oh, I Mm -hmm. was referred by a client. When she tried to follow up with the client, they said the client happened to be out of town. Mm -hmm. Convenient. Did this person know that they were picking a client that was going to be out of town so she couldn't get in touch with them? That's what I feel like. I think that's why police have said... This is somebody with intimate knowledge of her professional life because they didn't not only did they know she was a real estate agent and called her for a real estate listing and that she listed those types of houses, you know, would sell those types of houses, you know, uh, upscale in the neighborhood. They knew where she lived, where she worked. But the specifically saying I was referred by this client that was unreachable, somebody that had access to her client list would know that. Yeah. And. I imagine that's a short list of people that would have access to that. Yes, it would probably be people that you worked with. There was another suspicious phone call to a young real estate agent in February of 2008. This time, the recipient was 22-year-old agent Jasmine Parsons, who had previously dated Jason Zalo. The day after Lindsay's murder, Parsons received a call from a private number. A female caller had a heavy accent and an odd request. She just said, can you come over? I want to list my house. And I'm like, okay, what's your address? And she's like, oh, you know what? I'm not sure. Can I call you back? And she didn't call back. Parsons reported the call to police. This was left out of almost every other thing I watched on this. Am I? Did you see this anywhere else? I didn't. And it seems like a big chunk of big nugget of info. I'm like sitting on the couch and Paris is like, why are you just yelling what? And I was like, what? Someone else got a phone call? This was in the National Post. This was in the Times Colonist. This was in the province. It was in like four or five newspapers and was reported widely at the time. And then it was not mentioned again. What do you think? Do you think it's related? I wonder because the burner cell phone didn't, wasn't used ever again. If And this was a woman with a strange accent, so it wasn't, you know, assuming it's the same person, I don't know, were they calling as a sort of a red herring for police of like, oh, they may target someone else next. And it wasn't just Lindsay. They're just trying to lure real estate agents who are young. They said, because Lindsay was 24 and Jasmine's 22. And there's another interview. And I don't, I mean, she talked to newspapers. There's plenty of news articles listing her full name. And she said, oh, because Lindsay and I are younger real estate agents, it was like a very small percentage of agents in the area were under the age of 25 or something like that or under the age of 30 so they kind of were familiar with each other plus they dated the same person yeah and so i wonder if 
in an effort to, you know, whatever you want to say, throw police off the trail or something, if they make that phone call to her and then police go, oh, well, it must be, you know, a serial killer is out looking for people. But it was just a way to kind of create some distraction. And that's why police haven't really harped on it or said anything else about it. Yeah, it's um, it's weird that more wasn't made of that. It could have been like what you just said. The worst case, they were really trying to lure another person out to another house and, and do it again. It's bizarre that they bailed so quickly in the yeah. call. I wonder if it was they did it just to see if she was a, you know, would bite. And when she's like, OK, what's your address? Then they they either did that to say, oh, are people afraid because they know to like watch out for the caller with the accent or we just want her to go report it to the police. So let's call and be weird and hang up really quick. Yeah. Cause that's like a weird thing to say, to say, I went to list my house. And when she's like, what's your address? You're like, I don't know. Bye. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. you know where you live. It's yeah. And yeah, it seems like a pointless call either to not an alibi. Cause that's not really what's going on here, but you know what I mean? Like drop these little crumbs of like, like red herring crumbs or throw them off. Yeah. Just throw them off the scent. Yeah. One connection police began investigating was the connection between Lindsay and what was at the time, the largest drug bust in Alberta's history in which police seized 67 kilos or nearly 150 pounds of cocaine. Lindsay had gone to Alberta to visit her father in December of 2007, according to multiple interviews with Jeff, her father. During that time, she expressed dismay about her relationship with Jason, but she also reached out to an old friend while in town. Erickson Lopez del Alcazar was a friend of Lindsay's from their high school days. Sergeant Horsley of the Saanich Police confirmed that during her trip, Lindsay reached out to Erickson twice, once via a Facebook message and once during a phone call. Sergeant Horsley said in an interview with Crime Watch Daily that police have no idea the contents of the call or the purpose for the Facebook message. Well, we, here's we where are. maybe some connections can be made as to what's going on, or it's another huge red herring. But, you know, if you're in town and I don't think it's unreasonable to hook up with an old friend and message yeah. them on on Facebook or or call them. Did she actually end up meeting up with them? That's mm -hmm. what we're unclear about. Yes, exactly. They said that she definitely had the phone call and definitely the Facebook message. If it seemed like they were planning something, you know, you make a phone call and say, oh, I'll meet you here at this place. Yeah, we wouldn't know exactly what they talked about or what the purpose was, but or what she know, could have seen. Exactly. And we have, you know, we all have old friends like that, mm -hmm. that you're like, oh, we used to run together. We've taken two different paths, but that's okay. We're still, you're still a good guy. And you don't understand, like, maybe, but also the people he rolls with are not good guys because they yeah. are trying to distribute 150 pounds of cocaine. Yeah. The picture of this guy in the Crime Watch Daily episode, he's on a couch feeding a baby tiger a bottle of milk. That gives you just any idea of types of people he's probably hanging out with that have yeah. tigers as just pets mm -hmm. at their compounds. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've been guilty of that, too. You're like, well, I, I know them. They surely everything's fine. You may know them. You don't know the people that they're friends with or who do, who they do business with yeah. or crimes with. Less than a month later, on January 22nd, 2008. 
Less than a month later, on January 22nd, 2008, Erickson was arrested as part of the massive 67-kilo drug bust. Police in Alberta and British Columbia were working together to bust what they described as an organized network that regularly transports large volumes of cocaine. Between the two provinces, according to CTV News, Sergeant Horsley told Crime Watch Daily that the intended recipients of the cocaine haul were livid that they'd lost out on what amounted to millions of dollars of drugs. He described how several possible associates were dragged from their beds and questioned about who could have possibly tipped authorities off to the large shipment. Initially, Saanich police told the media there was no connection between Erickson's arrest and Buziak's murder. However, in a 2019 interview with Crime Watch Daily, Sergeant Horsley suggested that possibly one of those questioned by the angry drug cartel could have given up Lindsay's name. He clarified this did not mean Lindsay was involved, but suggested that someone simply needed a scapegoat, and Lindsay was the one chosen. Lindsay's dad, Jeff, told Dr. Phil in an interview, Lindsay did say she saw something she shouldn't have seen. And, and, he, and then Jeff said that in reference to the trip to Calgary, that she saw something on that trip that she wasn't supposed to see. But I thought it was interesting that initially, and this is why this connection here is why I think Sanish police from day one, moment one should have said, we got to call somebody in because this may be connected to something that y'all are messing with. And the problem, whenever you silo yourself and you say, well, we're going to, this is our murder from our jurisdiction. We'll solve it. You may not understand that the two people that you're looking for, they already know who they are. The maybe the Mounties know who they are, or another jurisdiction. You know, the there's like a integrated crime unit. They already know who they are, and they're putting witness protection program, and they're hiding in another country mm-hmm. because yes, they killed Lindsay, but then they also turned over this big drug dealer, and the FBI and CIA and the gov- the Canadian government all worked together and decided this person was more important than this life, and. You may never know that unless you participate with these other organizations. Yeah. And then even then you might not know. And even then they might not tell you or they, you know, at least maybe I don't know in that case do the the government just lets it go unsolved. Surely they don't make up a fake story as to what happened. I imagine the family just doesn't Heather, get to know. Are you know. saying surely the government didn't make up a fake story about something that happened? The government lied to us? <laughs> are you saying that they took a true thing and then made a fake thing from I that thing? I think it's possible. And I yes, I do unfortunately think that um, law enforcement agencies keep stuff from each other all the time for yeah. whatever infighting reasons they may have. But who who suffers from all of it? The victim and their families. Yeah, exactly. And, and then you have people getting wrongfully accused or maybe rightfully accused, but there's nothing's going to happen because they don't have the evidence because it's with this other. It's just, yeah, there need to be more disclosure, I think, especially when she, there's an inkling of this, some sort of a possible drug connection, not with her doing it or dealing it, but just her, you know, going and grabbing a beer with a guy that was massively doing it. That's still something I think that's relevant. You shouldn't immediately go, well, it's not related. Yeah. You go grab a beer with the friend to catch up. You don't realize that he's also making plans to do a big drug deal. Just, you know, walk out to the car, do this, come back. It doesn't take long for you to witness something that somebody thinks you shouldn't have seen. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a paranoid person that is using or selling or dealing drugs, if a stranger witnesses something that 
you might think is like, oh, whatever, that wasn't a big deal. It doesn't matter if you think that. If they think you're a liability and you could cause them to go to jail, then you become the problem. Exactly. It's like, well, she was at that table when y'all were talking. Well, she didn't know what operation whatever was. Mm-hmm. Like, she didn't know what our, but oh, really? Because immediately after that meeting, six weeks later, all my fucking cocaine got taken by the government. Who was that yeah. woman you were at dinner with? Yeah. Just a month after the murder, Lindsay's family explored the idea of putting up a reward for any information. According to the Times colonist, Saanich police discouraged the idea, telling the family. They had sufficient information and there was no need to do so. That turned out not to be the case. Lindsay's family, especially her dad, Jeff, became frustrated with what he considered the slow movement of the investigation. Yeah, this also, I was... Again, they said, don't put out a reward because we might get too many tips. They are squashing every idea this grieving family has to make them feel like they are contributing to the investigation of their loved one's murder, get the ball rolling, get any information and help. To be told is the grieving family, like all this stuff that you're trying to do to solve this case You've got to stop when they're not doing anything that is going to hinder the case. None of this is unreasonable. A reward is extremely normal. Giving media interviews like what would have happened instead? I mean, who's to say that if they had gone on several local news, you know, you know, go like the the evening news and say, like, the woman's family speaks out. You know, you see crying family members on TV. If a friend of a friend of the killer is like, God, I feel so I'm going to say something. Yeah. You know what? I am going to say something. But if it just gets like buried under the rug and nobody says anything for almost a full year, then all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't feel so bad anymore. It's yeah. been like a year. They're all fine. You I've know, versus exactly pulling at those heartstrings while it's all still fresh. Mm-hmm. Two, I think these are two blunders. Three, by not calling in anybody else. By the police. Sinisterhood will be right back. In June of 2007, the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit, or VIMCU, was established to investigate homicides, cold cases, and missing persons, among other crimes. This unit covers all of Vancouver Island, except for Saanich, whose police department opted not to join the coalition. In 2009, on the one-year anniversary of Lindsay's death, the Times colonist paper reported that Saanich police had conducted 1,471 interviews, investigated 752 tips, and executed 30 search warrants. Despite having 20 officers working the case with over 89 helping at one point or another, no arrests were made. Six months into the investigation, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, six months into the investigation, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, conducted an audit on the file and provided a favorable review of the work so far. And that's a lot of legwork. I mean, 1,400 interviews, 750 tips. It just hasn't netted anything. Yeah. And 752 tips is a lot of tips. But how many more could you have possibly got if you'd gone to the public? Who's to say it is a ton of work they've done to come up with nothing. That's the hard part. And I think that's where even Sergeant Horsley says, you know, you know, Jeff Buziak is irritated with how slow we're working. And he's like, what am I going to be mad at him and blame him? It's 15 years. No, at he that said time. the, 12 the years. frustration is totally warranted yeah. because he's like, we don't have anybody. 
yeah, he's like, it's been this many years. We don't have anything. I get it. And that's fair. And I, it, to me, this just is why even six months, six months in, if the RMCP is or the RCMP is like, oh, everything, it looks, you know, they're doing an adequate job, except for the fact that, you know, we really haven't made any noticeable movement. Is six months long enough to let it linger before you call somebody in? Especially when you have already the Vancouver Island, this integrated crimes unit already, where you have experts in the field. Again, you may be really, really good at your job as a detective because you've investigated homicides. But how much have you worked with major crimes, drug busts, international drug trade? I mean, they're right there on the border with Washington State. And so at some point, you you just you need to call in those the big help. And it's right there on the island with you. What would the disadvantage be for them calling in the FBI in any case not just this but any case why do police departments want to kind of be like territorial over cases like this I think it's a leftover from the days of, you know, at least in the United States, I'm more qualified to comment on that, I will admit, although I have done research on the interjurisdictional play between these various policing organizations. But I think in the United States, a lot of times your funding is tied to your clearance mm-hmm. rate and it could, you don't feel like, you know, it's like classic trope on the, you know, when the you watch FBI a TV show versus the cops lose it to the feds, yeah, we're not going to let them in on our turf. It's all yeah. just a dick swinging contest when you all you need to be worried about is finding these people that viciously attacked this innocent woman. Right. I'm I'm feeling yeah, it's like your ego is not more important than solving this. I will say if I it feels like in the past five years, we've had more of a push towards interagency agreements, cooperation. I mean, the Vimku was like already existed in two thousand seven. So good on Vancouver okay, Island. And for also that. can we comment on how the one province to say we're good is the Saanich Police Department. It was like Saanich and maybe one other one, but still I was like, that's everybody else is in. Just get in. Just do it. Why why wouldn't you? I don't know. Well, but yeah, to the question as far as like, do the is there going to be more discussion? I think with the advent of more technology analytics available to law enforcement agencies, they're going to more quickly realize areas where they have issues and problems and be able to call in partner organizations sooner rather than going, well, this is one kind of a weird case. Like if you were working with Vimku, I'm not saying that this existed, but if there was a similar crime somewhere in another jurisdiction, you know, or if you're working with a larger uh, a larger organization. I don't know. That's it's an interesting parallel that Sanich chose not to join. And also they have failed to solve this case for 15 years that I did not. I mean, I noticed this and then later found interviews with Jeff Buziak going. And why did you not join? And mm-hmm. why have you not joined yet? Yeah, I completely understand his frustration. Throughout the first year of investigation, police searched Lindsay and Jason's condo obtained samples from other real estate agents and potential buyers to rule out anyone else who had been in the house and ran down public tips received through their tip line. Inspector Rob McColl, head of the Sandwich Police Department's major crime unit, told the Times colonist, It's common that these investigations are measured in years, not months. Just one day after the one-year anniversary of the murder, police released details on the two suspects, including a sketch of the female suspect and a description of her distinct dress. When confronted with why they didn't release the information sooner, 
Saanich Police Sergeant John Price told the Times colonists they held on to the information to ensure that it met with our investigative needs. When asked why the police released the sketch so close to the anniversary of Lindsay's death, Sergeant Price explained that it was to capitalize on the interest in the case brought on by the important date. The timing seemed to work, with police reporting just a week later they had over 50 calls come in, as well as in-person witnesses come forward. I would think that if you have any description of the suspect, immediately release it right yeah. away to find them as soon as possible and not one whole entire year later. Why are we sleeping on this evidence as if, like, in a year we're going to release something that'll blow your mind? So let's release it all now and try and solve it right away. Unless right? they didn't have it. But who came forward a year later to give that description? I mean, pretty quickly, eyewitnesses that saw the two people go into the home we're saying what they look like. Yeah, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I just remembered her. Oh my, yeah. I was in the Peace Corps for a year and I just, I left the day after and I just got home and remembered to tell you this. But yeah, it was interesting to say, well, we did it as a sort of a tactic. I'm like, here's the thing. Am I a Monday morning quarterback? Certainly. But that was, I think, another terrible move. Like when you have it, release it because everybody already, from the commentary we've gotten, not just from, in our research of this case, you know, Lindsay's friend saying things like this don't happen here. I mean, everybody, our listeners that live on Island are like, that is so out of the ordinary that if you, if it was eight months and 23 days after it happened and we're like, hey, we have a face in this case, people aren't going to go, what case? They immediately know who you're talking yeah. about. That is already the news event. And yes. then if you still haven't heard anything in four more months, then, you know, the anniversary, you know, re-release it or whatever. I just... It was strange to me. And it again, it's one of those like with the Candy Montgomery where we're like, at what point is it so much ineffective incompetence and or outright? Are you trying to hide something? And that that's I, it, I don't get that feeling yet. I just think like you're in over your head. To go, well, yeah. What can you do as a family member or a friend of a victim in that case? If you feel like the police just aren't doing their job. Is there someone above them you can call to be like, hey, listen, I somebody else has got to step in? I think there's nothing wrong with ever contacting, you know, your elected officials, somebody uh, that maybe could call in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or your the province, you know, any sort of sort of over their head. You can call it in. But the problem is like. They just the police just told you, hey, or, you know, say, oh, I'm going to go to the media myself. You know, I'm going to do interviews mm -hmm. or whatever. The police have told you, hey, don't go to the media because yeah. it will make it worse. Because then you think, well, I could never forgive myself if I robbed us and her family, you know, myself as her friend and her family of justice because I just couldn't wait. But it's a year and we're yeah. going to see it's now 15 years. And you're like, OK, at what point do I stop listening? Yeah. It was also on the one-year anniversary that police officially cleared Jason Salo as a person of interest. Sergeant Rob McColl, lead investigator, told the Times colonists that Zalo was never a suspect, but since he discovered the body, he was considered a person of interest. Jason has cooperated fully with police, conducting the crime scene walkthrough, providing prints and DNA, providing access to the couple's condo, and taking and passing a polygraph exam. Sergeant McColl did not elaborate why it took 12 months to officially clear Jason. Lindsay's family waited another year, still with no answers. On the two-year anniversary of her murder, Lindsay's mom, Evelyn, spoke publicly for the first time. At a press conference, the grieving mother said, 
Having Lindsay taken from us has been excruciatingly painful. Someone carried out a plan to end her life. None of us can fathom why. We need answers. Evelyn, along with the Greater Victoria Real Estate Board and the Canadian Real Estate Association, put up a reward, $100,000 for any tips leading to an arrest. Police also put a mannequin on display at the press conference, wearing a dress just like the one worn by the female suspect. I think that this dress was specifically worn by this woman to do just that. All of this attention is being thrown on the dress, which is a dress that the detective said it wasn't custom made. It's not a high-end designer. You could buy it at any department store. Therefore, a ton of people could have it. It's not that unique. Yeah, someone in our, I think it was in our DMs, it might have been in our comments, said, I had a dress like that when I worked as a paralegal. And I'm like, you know, look very similar. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's a similar pattern. And if it's something that's so wacky looking that people would remember it, but so ubiquitous that you can't trace it, it's genius to wear Mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's the perfect thing to wear if you want people not to look at your face, which it seems like she did. For sure. Saanich Police Spokeswoman Sergeant Julie Fast told reporters at the two-year anniversary that Lindsay was targeted, saying, She was intentionally lured to the home and she was intentionally killed. The reward was expected to be helpful, with Sergeant Fast adding, We believe that someone has the information we need to solve this, but for whatever reason, be it fear or loyalty or criminal intention, they're not talking. At the time, Jeff called for the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit to take over the case. When asked for follow-up on that, Sergeant Fast could not say whether the Saanich Police Department would ask for help. Sergeant Fast also did not comment on why police previously discouraged the family from offering a reward, saying only that whether or not to offer one is always the decision of the victim's family. Another case where I like to read things in chronological order of release just to see what everybody's saying. And for reading this article and saying, well, it's always up to the family. I was like, because I literally have it in black and white where you told them not to. So what is it? So again, I think there were mistakes made early on that bless them. They're now like trying to go back and cover up behind themselves. But it's like, I'm sorry, the quote, we believe someone has the information we need to solve this. I'm quoting the Saanich police just two years before that. Please be quiet. Don't talk to the media. We don't need any tips. Also, don't offer any money. Yeah. What is happening? I think it's a case of uh, you're spinning your reels because you don't want you know what you're doing and you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Maybe they got a lot of heat and negative press because they didn't allow the family to be more involved. So then they try and backpedal. Thing is, once it's out there, it's out there. If it's in print, if it's on the internet, forget about it. You can't take it back. You can amend what you said, but don't right. try and pretend like you never said it to begin with because then you just look like a liar. That's what I kind of got irritated. I was like, don't gaslight me and don't gaslight this family, especially Mm -mm. because saying, well, it's always up to the victims. I was like, yeah, well, two years ago they wanted, it was up to them and you told them not to. So it must be hard to be a spokesperson for the police. So yeah, because you know, you're like, your hands are tied a lot of the times, right? Sergeant fast is like, well, I didn't work here back then. Or like I worked there, but I was not on this case. So I don't know why they did that. No, you're, coming in to clean up the mess of somebody else. Six months later, in the summer of 2010, Saanich police began floating a new theory. Lindsay was targeted by mistake. The loose connection to the drug bust via her high school friend 
seemed to be the only tie she had to any criminal underground. Sergeant Chris Horsley told the Times colonist in June of 2010 that police had thoroughly searched Lindsay's life, her bank records, financial information, online footprint, social media, and phone activities, and found no sign of a connection to the underworld. If she had been killed by professional criminals, it would have been instead by mistake. Yeah, he said, aside from that friend Erickson, that he said everybody else she was in contact with was just either, you know, classmates or colleagues from work or people she knew socially like it wasn't and this is her secret phone where she was doing drug deals it was like it had she's completely clean yeah by august of 2010 her family became discouraged by a lack of leads brought on by the one hundred thousand dollar reward they let the offer lapse with Lindsay's uncle art reitmeyer telling the times colonist if a hundred thousand dollars isn't enough i don't know what is Jeff reiterated his request that the Saanich police turn over the investigation to the larger integrated major crimes unit. The Saanich PD maintained its jurisdiction over the case. This is mind boggling to me. At some point, just fucking admit you you don't know what you're doing. It's okay. You're, everyone is going to think better of you for having the self-awareness to say, I need help with this than to continue acting like, We've got it, everybody. We've got it. You clearly don't. So ask for some help. Yeah. That's what the frustrating thing is, is that it's now it's by August of 2010. I mean, it's over two years at this point, creeping up on three years. I'm sure there's movement every day because they said at no point has it been a cold case. There's always been at least five uh, five officers or detectives assigned to this case. But at some point you say, I also have other crimes I have to solve. And clearly, I've already looked at this. I'm not the best suited for this. Who else can look at this? And there's no shame in that because the point is not to be right. The point is for this family to know what happened. I personally think it's commendable and admirable when people do ask for help. I think it says a lot about you as a person that you have enough self-awareness to know that you can't do everything. And it to me, makes you look more credible and honest and trustworthy that you're mm-hmm. willing to say, we need some help because we want answers instead of just unable to swallow your pride if that's what's going on. Yeah, and I don't know. I, it, if there is something political and you all live uh, in Victoria and there's a some sort of a police political thing that we're not aware of, but I didn't see that in this at all it wasn't like the mayor's calling for him to turn it over and they refuse you know whatever it it didn't look like it was any sort of a power grab it just was an insistence of like we've got this we've got this except for please if anybody knows anything please tell us but we still got it but also prove themselves almost like i said it doesn't matter who solves it someone just needs to do it so i think it's going to take like with Kristen smart where some of the maybe original people that were on the file either retire or leave and you're going to get a new fresh set of eyes on it who says i don't care i don't care what happened before i don't care how things badly things were botched i'm not going to get in trouble for it i'm here just to solve this and that's who we need working on it and start from scratch yeah and the the first thing you do is call in somebody else to help i would also if i lived in sandwich i would be doing what jeff buziak is doing and contacting people because there's two people that brutally murdered someone just walking around in an area where that does not happen. So I would be, for my own sake, I don't want those people walking out on the street. So we all collectively, it's in everybody's best interest for this case to be solved. 
however it gets solved. Yeah, it's a public safety matter for yeah, real. Yeah, for sure. Sinisterhood will be right back. Though the police refused to pass the case along, the Buziaks had hope with the release of a Dateline episode covering the story in September of 2010. Saint PD cooperated with the television show. Sergeant Dean Jansen told the Times colonist at the time, Our detectives came up against a wall and decisions were made to move forward with the Dateline production. We're told in talking to the producers that it will generate tips for us. The numbers we feel will be in the hundreds, and that is typical of past productions. Despite their optimism, the Dateline episode aired to a reported 6.3 million viewers, but there were still no arrests made. Sergeant Jansen said in a follow-up interview, I've been told by our detectives that the responses are numerous, but not overwhelming. Well, good for you, because nobody wanted to be overwhelmed with the amount of tips coming in. (laughs) Yeah, they asked for help. NBC Dateline. They called Josh Mankiewicz to come. And he interviewed, uh, I mean, this is the episode that just got released, the audio of which was released uh, last week. And he interviews Jason Zalo. He interviews Shirley, Jason's mom. They interview Matt McDuff, which is Lindsay's ex-boyfriend. Of course, they interviewed Jeff. And, you know, it's... They asked for, you know, as a call to action at the end, they asked for more information and apparently it just wasn't as big of a hit as they thought it would be at the time. Hmm. That's discouraging. In 2011, Jeff created the website lindsaybuziakmurder.com to gather information and encourage more people to take interest in his daughter's case. Over the next 12 years, he would generate interest, speculation, tips, a lawsuit, and even a supposed confession all in the relentless pursuit of justice for Lindsay. Anyone with information on the murder of Lindsay Buziak is urged to contact the Sanich police at 1-888-980-1919 or tips at sanichpolice.ca. You can also contact Greater Victoria Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or 1-800-222-8477. You can also submit a tip online at victoriacrimestoppers.com. So what do we think? So the first two years of this investigation, how it was handled, I find really frustrating. And I really hope that with the benefit of a fresh set of eyes or perhaps somebody who's more of an expert in connections to organized crime or just in general and like solving a case like this, a super cold, you know, 15 year cold case can step in because I think when you get so far behind so quickly by not asking for, you know, the family didn't talk to the media not asking for tips, not asking for, you know, putting a reward out there and not putting the suspect's faces out until 12 months later, I think, or face and description and all that out. I think you've gotten yourself so far behind that you absolutely have to reach out to get help. And it just has not happened. I mean, aside from like Dateline and participating in media interviews. Yeah. I don't think that, any of the information that they currently have and the way they've been doing things has produced anything. So, I mean, you'd be real remiss to keep doing the same thing you're doing when that's not giving you the results you want. You got to bring in other people. You got to kind of start from scratch, try some new avenues. As far as what we think as to why she was targeted I think that there might be something with this 
drug connection, even if it's as much of a throwaway as this guy got a DM from her and saying, hey, we should catch up. I'm in town. Maybe they don't even get together. But then later somebody asks him for a name, somebody in the Mm -hmm. cartel. He just saw a DM from someone he went to school with and hasn't seen in years. That name is just kind of in his head. And you throw out a name because your life, your life is being threatened. I mean, this is complete speculation. But I think that when this case is solved, it's going to come down to it was something that was a complete freak accident. That like she, it was, you know, her name just got thrown out there by mistake and she was the victim of a heinous crime when she, it, she shouldn't have been anywhere even like involved in it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And that would make sense as to why it has been so difficult to solve if they're pulling, you know, if the cartel whose kilos got, you know, a couple million bucks worth of cocaine's gotten taken, if they're yanking people out of bed going, I will kill you now if you don't tell me who who ratted me and maybe your girlfriend ratted or your friend or you ratted and you just go, um, it was my friend from high school. You know, you mm-hmm. just think Ugh. the thing is then, I mean, that person's Erickson Del Alcazar is still alive. Still, I am not sure current incarceration status, but in search searching the name saw several repeat in and out, you know, for similar drug trafficking offenses. So if that lead hasn't been run down, why not? I'm sure mm-hmm. it has. But I think you're right. It comes down to if you say as a community, this crime doesn't happen here, mm-hmm. then you need the professionals working on it who work on cases like this every day. And if you're working a small beat, there's no shame in it. It's very important to have a, a community policing, right? You make friends. They, you know everybody. It doesn't happen here. It's totally safe. And when it does, it's something explicable with a clear motive. It's a jealous lover. It's a money thing. It's whatever. But, you know, a robbery gone wrong or something like that. But if you say this stuff never happens, a hitman came here and slaughtered a woman, lured her to her death with premeditation and planning. This is so far out of the norm that we do not have the skills to handle that. When I was a lawyer and someone walked in my when I was a lawyer, I'm still a lawyer. But when I was practicing and had my own practice and people would walk in the door, if someone came in and said, I have an extremely difficult divorce I have to go through and we have got six kids, two of them are both of ours. One of them's just his, one of them's just mine, but I want to have custody. I would just go, I love that you have this issue that you think I could do. I cannot thank you for having that faith in me. I do not have that ability. I have got some much, much more skilled people in this specific area of the law that can go and help you. Mm-hmm. That if someone said, hey, I, I own a business and I want to acquire this other business, I'm like, hell yeah, let's talk. I know how to do that. But there are certain things just because you are an investigator, a detective, head of the major crimes unit. It There's so much variation and so much fact specific that I think early on it takes what you exactly how what you said earlier, it takes a lot in a person to say, I don't know everything and mm-hmm. I don't know this. And I'm really sad for her family that much, much, much earlier that they the CNHPD did not just go shut it down. Nobody touch anything. You know who we need? Like so and so who's been investigating hitman murders for 53 years for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Get that person in here. She'll know what to do. And I think that they didn't do that speaks to the level of an experience that they it didn't yeah. maybe it didn't occur to them that all that needed to be done because they didn't this is going to sound kind of naive but maybe they didn't 
realize how hard it would be to solve a case like this because they don't have any, any experience with it. You know, the best time they could have gotten someone else involved was back then. The second best time is right now. So what, you know, I mean, do it now. It's been 15 years. Like, yeah, her parents aren't going to live forever. Wouldn't it be nice in their left lifetime to see their daughter's killers be brought to justice. Her father is just working tirelessly to find this, these people. And I can't imagine the frustration when you just feel like you're kind of doing it all by yourself. And that's what it sounds like. I mean, he will talk about it in part three. The, they have, we've got the FBI, some possible evidence analysis. I don't know that it's a full FBI investigation, but at least utilizing the evidence analysis that has developed in the years, which will cover all all the more recent developments in part three. But you're right. He's been putting himself, Jeff Buziak has been, in some cases, it seems like puts himself in danger. He was telling if what he said is true, which I have no reason not to think it is, telling Dr. Phil, he's like, oh yeah, I'll run down people that were involved with that drug gang and I'll just go knock on their door and be like, I'm Mm. Lindsay Buziak's dad. And Dr. That's Phil's like, you know, he's like, don't you think that's dangerous? And he's like, I got nothing to lose. I'm like, when you've been pushed for 15 years yeah. and we'll also see this lindsaybuziakmurder.com, how far Jeff Buziak was willing to go, what he was willing to say mm-hmm. and the lawsuit and the other, the type of people it attracted, the type of things that were being posted, we'll see and, and ask the ultimate question, which I think the only time you ever want to discourage a family from doing something is hey, if anything of what you're doing is going to later impact a trial or, Mm -hmm. but that's a little bit cart before the horse because we don't even have a suspect, a defendant or anything like that. Yeah, I don't think asking the public for help or putting out a reward is going to potentially impact a a trial. I could see later on down the line, speaking to the media, maybe you don't want certain details getting out because you're you want only the person that committed the act to know that so you can use that as leverage and in interrogation. It will be interesting to talk in the next episode about the website and some issues that came came from that. And some of the more fringe theories, which uh, as far as so what do we think? I think and we'll we can dive in since we're running out of time today. We can dive more into that in the next run. But that's a good point that. It could have, was it just a thrill killer who this type of person was just looking for somebody and they picked a random phone out of the phone book? I don't think so, but that has been one of about five theories that have been floated out there. So we can go kind of theory by theory Mm -hmm. and say, you know, is this a feasible one based on the evidence we have? And if not, why not? Yeah, agreed. Well, we will discuss more about that next week. We love providing Sinisterhood to no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. We recently joined Patreon's, uh, we're a test creator for their join for free option. This is a new thing on Patreon where you can join our Patreon for free simply to get updates anytime we post anything to see if there's anything good you want to join for, get some alerts on what new episodes we're coming out with, when we're going on tour, and whatever other shenanigans we have going on on Patreon, any of our live streams, anything like that. If you go to our Patreon, you'll see a button at the bottom that says join for free and you'll just get updates from us. So just sign up for free and you'll get some alerts 
from us and keep in the loop. And if you change your mind later, you can join the Patreon and get any of our wonderful perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the rolling the airwaves and getting into it tier, a special shout out on the show, a monthly bonus minisode, and patron-exclusive audio content including Emma the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And our patrons in the getting into it tier are able to vote on a bonus content segment each quarter that they would like to see us live stream. The next one will be in June. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. And this month's will be April 24th at 8 p.m. Central. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available, and those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch, and we want you to keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop on the top banner. And if you want 10% or even 20% off of our merch, you can go to our Patreon because our Ruling the Airwaves subscribers get 10% off all merch, and our Getting Into It subscribers get 20%. And don't forget, for the month of May, we are donating 100% of profits from all merch sales to the Victims First Fund, supporting the victims of the Allen Outlet Mall shooting that just occurred this week in our area. You can support the show fast, easy, and at no cost to you by rating, reviewing, and following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Speaking of reviews, you can easily leave one by going to Sinisterhood.com slash reviews. Yours may even be featured on our social media. We just featured one yesterday on our social media that was so very nice. And uh, Jess, who's our Patreon, responded, hey, that's mine. Because, you know, (laughs) Apple Podcasts, like, it gives you, like, a weird username. She's like, it's me. So thanks, Jess. We didn't even know. (laughs) Thank you, Jess. Well, Jess, if you or anyone listening also has a friend who you think would like us, you can share any episode with them by clicking the three dots in the top right corner. You can also share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting Sinisterhood.com slash playlist. Another thing you can visit, Sinisterhood.com slash live shows, because we are on tour right now. We're on a break right now, but coming up in June, we got our whole West Coast leg. Oh, that West Coast leg. We're going to L.A. and San Francisco. Show some of that. Uh, We're going to San Fran first. So y'all better bring the heat, Northern California, San Fran area. Instead of West Coast, East Coast, we kind of have a North California, Southern California thing going on right now. And I'm just going to let everybody know we see the ticket sales Southern California is destroying Northern California right now. So (laughs) if you in the Northern California area, San Francisco, want to beat your SoCal (laughs) fellow residents, go to Sinisterhood.com slash live shows. You can find information on all venues for shows, tickets, all that good stuff. No Cal, SoCal (gasps) battle. Oh, there is a No Cal, SoCal battle. Who's going to win right now? SoCal has a big advantage so no cow you better get in there 
Show up, y'all. Well, speaking of showing up, you can show up online on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. You can also like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We are on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. We're also on Cameo. If you need to get a last-minute gift for any upcoming event that might be happening, any sort of a holiday, anniversary, even a birthday, and it's the last minute, there's a 24-hour option on Cameo that uh, just let us know. It's due in 24 hours. We will race to the studio (laughs) or to one another and get you your gift so that you are not left empty-handed. But if you go to cameo.com slash sinisterhood, you can request us to do a custom video shout-out for the person in your life. We can say uh, happy birthday, happy Mother's Day, happy anniversary. I love you. Congratulations. Here's a pep talk. Anything you want at cameo.com slash sinisterhood. And if it's you know, Saturday evening, you know you got a a lovely mom next door and you want to get her something and you didn't get her anything yet, Cameo, we can do it in 24 hours. We'll do it. There you go. You got it. I love those types of gifts too because it's personalized and it also shows that you take an interest in someone to know that they they enjoy the show and they would like to hear from us. It's way more thoughtful and personal than a robe. Or right, you're like Ella told me she's getting me a blender. Guess what? We've already got one. Uh, <laughs> then she told me she's getting me a hamburger maker. Not even sure what that is. I thought that Honestly, was what Tommy is. <laughs> <laughs> we have one, honey. It's your father. You know what though? I would, is it like a panini press, but like no hamburger idea. size? Your child's a genius. I'll just I have to say that. Already. She also threw out she's brilliant. a trophy with a clip inside, like For a like hair your clip. Hair? Yeah. It's so okay. effective. I said, well, I love clips and I love trophies. So she knows it. She's I like, best mom and these. useful. <laughs> clip. Take the clip out. Now make me a hamburger. <laughs> She's like, I got you a hamburger maker and it's Tommy and the thing that says kiss the chef. <laughs> She's like, I just got him like an apron. So he would do Perfect. it more. Very great. Where are you at on the internet? Where can we see wonderful pictures of you with your blender and your trophy this weekend? <laughs> uh, you can find those at Christy M. Wallace. On Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, I mean, go ahead. It's Christy or GTFO. I have I never post anything on there. I got on Twitter the other day and I was confused. I felt old. Get off. So Get off. I got off immediately. I only got on because you said it's such a shit show. So I wanted to see. And then immediately I was like, I don't know what's real and fake. And that's, that's Elon problem. Musk's world. So I bounced. To throw it out there, if somebody has a blue check, they might be deranged. That's what apparent I I follow Sesame Street on Instagram, and recently Grover tweeted that he was going no no blue check because they're very liberal and progressive. Grover's and so, out. <laughs> I guess they're like Emma doesn't want a blue check. They don't. None of them want a blue check because they think it says something about them. So if the Sesame Street monsters don't want one, I certainly don't. I just want to say I've never had a blue check and neither has the show and neither of you. And we were just doing that in solidarity with Elmo and Grover. Like it wasn't because we were That's not famous. The reason. No, it's not because we're not verified because of like a status. It's because yeah. we stand with Sesame Street and exactly. will always it has nothing to do with our lack of notoriety. It's fully, that's how dedicated we are to the cult of Sesame Street. Yeah. So if Cookie praise. Monster doesn't need it. Why do I? I just, that's who I follow. Between Cookie Monster and Oscar the Grouch, that's all I need to know about how to behave in society. <laughs> yeah. So we're good. And Bart and Ernie, they that's show us right. compassion, good friendship. Buddies. Possibly we more. Have, we have Ernie in our intro video for True. the live show. There so we go. That's, so 
We're doing. That's the reason. Everyone. Or Illuminati. That's the Ernie Illuminati. We're in it. Uh, well, I'm on the internet on Twitter at NCK versus the world. I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Everybody, thank you so much for supporting the show. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts: Mackenzie Cook, Erica Kelly, Casey Stickle, Polly Holiday, Marie Thorne, Erica Melton, Maria Burns, Maria Mercado Johnson, Madeline Ladding, and Victoria Kilpatrick. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We sincerely appreciate all the love and support, and hope you pronounce your names correctly. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Mwahaha. <laughs>